0: So we are recording this on January 13th, 2022. And this morning, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed the House, and they are now in the Senate, where basically they're not expected to pass. Senate Democrats are trying to push voting rights legislation forward, but are facing obstacles as key moderates, the Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, reiterate they are not supporting a change to filibuster rules to advance the bills. We had a different episode planned for this week, but in light of the fight that is going down in the Senate right now, and given that the landscape may be different when this is released next week, we thought we needed to re-release this episode on the filibuster with a special introduction as to why we should all care about these two bills and to say that you really need to take action right now by calling your senators to act on the filibuster. And an asterisk here, because if you're part of the Trump backed forces of authoritarianism, you probably don't care. But if you truly want America to be a democracy in its current state, and if you love parts of the Constitution, as our very own Misasha does, you should probably be all about this, too. Most importantly, you should be really loudly, vocally supporting both bills.
1: And I would like to asterisk this because I think that people like to pick and choose from our constitution. But the thing about democracy and constitution and by the people, for the people and all of that is like, if you really do believe that and you are 100% backing certain parts of this constitution, you should absolutely be all in on democracy as well.
0: Love it. Now, the problem with bills like these is that much like a theory, like critical race theory, people make judgments, these snap judgments about what they think are in the bills rather than actually sitting down and reading them. And as a great email from our favorite Heather Cox Richardson pointed out, it's worth reading what's actually in the bills, because to my mind, it is bananas that they are in any way controversial. And that's a direct quote from her email. So, Sasha, do you want to tell us what these bills are all about and what's in them?
1: Yeah, and we pulled this directly from Heather Cox Richardson's letters from an American emails, which, by the way, if you're not subscribing to those, you should absolutely subscribe to those. You get it in your email inbox every day. But here are these two bills explained. So first, the Freedom to Vote Act is a trimmed version of the For the People Act the House passed at the beginning of this congressional session. And so you might remember that For the People Act, but this is the sort of condensed version of it called the Freedom to Vote Act. It establishes a baseline for access to the ballot across all states. That baseline includes at least 2 weeks of early voting for any town of more than 3,000 people, including on nights and weekends, if you remember, this is a big issue in certain states, for at least 10 hours a day. It permits people to vote by mail or to drop their ballots into either a polling place or a dropbox and guarantees those votes will be counted so long as they are postmarked on or before election day and arrive at the polling place within a week. It also makes election day a holiday. It provides uniform standards for voter IDs in states that require them. And Sarah, as I'm reading this, does any of this sound unreasonable.
0: No. In fact, having lived in states where um, dropping your ballot in the ballot box ahead of time has been standard for years and years and years and years and years, I do not even understand why this has been an issue. Right.
1: Okay. so that's not it, though. The Freedom to Vote Act cracks down on voter suppression, which I feel like we should all agree is not a good thing. It makes it a federal crime to lie to voters in order to deter them from voting, for example, distributing official-looking flyers with the wrong dates for an election or locations of a polling place, for example. And it increases the penalties for voter intimidation, both of which sound like no-brainers. It restores federal voting rights for people who have served time in jail, creating a uniform system out of the current patchwork one, as we've discussed on this podcast, When you've been convicted of a felony in the past, like, it is unequal in states as to whether or not your voting rights are restored. It also requires states to guarantee, and I love this one, that no one has to wait more than 30 minutes to vote. Oh my gosh, all those lines are springing to mind. Do you remember those images of people waiting in line for hours and hours and hours? Yes, this would be amazing. Mm -hmm. So using measures notably already in place in a number of states, the Freedom to Vote Act provides uniform voter registration rules. It establishes automatic voter registration at state departments of motor vehicles, permits same-day voter registration, which I can tell you, having run election protection hotlines, this is a huge issue and not consistent among the states, allows online voter registration, and protects voters from the purges that have plagued voting registrations for decades now, requiring that voters be notified if they are dropped from the rolls and given information on how to get back to them. Also, sounds really logical, making it easy to access the ability to vote, right? The Freedom to Vote Act bans partisan gerrymandering. Also sounds good. The Freedom to Vote Act requires any entity that spends more than $10,000 in an election to disclose all its major donors. And in doing so, it really is going to clean up the dark money in politics. It requires all advertisements to identify who is paying for them. It makes it harder for political action committees or PACs to coordinate with candidates, and it beefs up the power of the Federal Election Commission that ensures candidates run their campaigns legally. Imagine that. Right? I think that we have had so much discussion about dark money and who's funding what and from where that to put this all out there, is amazing because we regulate this in advertising like the Federal Trade Commission does. That seems like we should be able to do the same thing through the Federal Election Commission. The Freedom to Vote Act also addresses the laws Republican-dominated states have passed in the last year to guarantee that Republicans win future elections. It protects local election officials from intimidation and firing for partisan purposes. It protects or it expands penalties for tampering with ballots after an election as actually happened in Maricopa County, Arizona, where the Cyber Ninjas investigating the results did not use standard protection for them. Do you remember the Cyber Ninjas? I feel like we discussed them here, too. And have been unable to produce documents for a freedom of information lawsuit, which is basically when you're able to request information from the government under this freedom of information request, leading to fines of $50,000 a day and the company's dissolution. So meaning, if you're going to do the job, do it right? Right. If someone does tamper with the results or refuses to certify them, voters can sue. And this is where I think the private right to sue is actually a really great thing here, because that's an accountability check that we actually do need. The Act also prevents attempts to overturn elections by requiring audits after elections and, notably, making sure those audits have clearly defined rules and procedures. I think that's a really key part, right? And it prohibits voting machines that don't leave a paper record. Excellent. right? So that's the Freedom to Vote Act. All sounds very logical, very needed, and very uniform, actually, if we are trying to really create a similar voting experience for every citizen in the United States. All right, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, or VRAA, takes on issues of discrimination in voting by updating and restoring the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which is the VRA, that the Supreme Court gutted twice in 2013 and 2021. The VRA required, so that's the 1965 one, required that states with a history of discrimination in voting get the Department of Justice to approve any changes they want to make in their voting laws before they went into effect. And in the 2013 Shelby County versus Holder decision, the Supreme Court struck that requirement down in part because the justices felt that the formula in the law was outdated. So this new VRAA, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, provides a new modern formula for determining which states need pre-approval. And that's based on common sense and how many voting rights violations they've had in the past 25 years. After 10 years without violations, they will no longer need preclearance, suggesting that they might have actually worked out some of those violations in the past. It also establishes some practices that must always be cleared, such as getting rid of ballots printed in different languages. I'm laughing because I, you know, in California, this is never an issue, but obviously we have 49 other states here. And that has been required in the U.S. since 1975, by the way. The VRAA also restores the ability of voters to sue if their rights are violated, something the 2021 Brnovich versus the Democratic National Committee decision makes difficult. And we had talked about that on the podcast as well. And again, that private right of action is really, really important in this instance. The VRAA directly addresses the ability of Indigenous Americans who face unique voting problems to vote. It requires at least one polling place, one, on tribal lands, for example, and requires states to accept tribal or federal IDs. Yes. Right? That's it. Those two bills, that's what they say. So also in Heather Cox Richardson's words, it is off the charts astonishing that no Republicans are willing to entertain what we just talked about, right, which seemed like very common sense measures, especially considering that there are in the Senate, a number of Republicans who voted in 2006 to restore the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the VRAA is designed to restore. So they actually already voted for this. And now 15 years later, they're like, "Mm, nah, I was wrong to think about equality in voting. So as we are recording this as well, we're dealing with this divided fallout between Republicans and Democrats over President Biden's comments about this because he has come out and has been very vocal about this voting rights issue. Mitch McConnell revealed his discomfort with President Joe Biden's speech on January 11th at the Atlanta University Center Consortium when President Biden pointed out that history has never been kind to those who have sided with voter suppression over voters' rights. And it will be even less kind for those who side with election subversion. I mean, I think that's an accurate fact. I think he's just stating facts. Mm -hmm. Biden asked Republican senators to choose between our history's advocates of voting rights and those who opposed such rights. And specifically, he asked, do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? which I think is such a baller move, too. Mm-hmm. I, I love that he said that. Anyway, today, as we're recording this, McConnell, who had never complained about the intemperate speeches of former President Donald Trump, said that Biden's speech revealed him to be, quote, profoundly, profoundly unpresidential. And after my eyes like rolled back in my head, I have to say, since if he wasn't saying that, every time Trump gave a speech, which clearly he never said that, then I think we can like asterisk that opinion right there. (laughs) All right. But anyway, the voting rights measures that we've been talking about, those two bills appear to have the support of the Senate Democrats, but because of the Senate filibuster, which makes it possible for senators to block any measure unless a supermajority of 60 senators are willing to vote for it, voting rights cannot pass unless Democrats are able to or unwilling to find out a way to bypass the filibuster. And as we mentioned at the start, as Sarah, as you mentioned, there are two Democratic senators who are currently unwilling to do that. And this is a huge problem. Because again, we need a supermajority of 60 senators. On January twelfth, Senate Majority Leader Senator Chuck Schumer announced that he would bring voting rights legislation to the Senate floor for debate, which Republicans have, you know, outwardly rejected by avoiding a Republican filibuster through a complicated workaround. And I hope you're ready for this because it requires a little bit of mental gymnastics. So while when the House and Senate disagree on a bill, which is pretty much always, they send it back and forth with revisions until they reach a final version. And according to Democracy Docket, after it has gone back and forth three times, a motion to proceed on it cannot be filibustered. So Democrats in the House are going to take a bill that has already hit that three trip mark and substitute for that bill, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. They'll pass the combined bill and send it to the Senate where debate over it cannot be filibustered. And then that's going to force Republican senators to explain to the people exactly why they oppose. Stuff that just seems to be common sense.
0: And Will we, as the people, hold them accountable for that? This is up to us, folks. And so this episode goes into the filibuster, which is another one of those words we really need to comprehensively understand and place in context if we understand why it's so damaging to the democracy that we're looking for. But a lot like everything else the past few years, nothing is guaranteed with regards to these bills, the filibuster, the midterms, which... In Misasha's Twitter dive yesterday, she discovered are now less than 300 days away and so much more.
1: (laughs) I learned a lot on Twitter, I have to say. In 10 minutes, you know, you can learn a lot.
0: It's amazing what we do sometimes. So here's the bottom line. Okay,
1: if you want to
0: preserve democracy, call your senators. You must do something. We the people must do something. And so you can call the U.S. Capitol switchboard and ask for the senator from your state at this number. So if you're not driving, write it down, 202-224-3121. To read it again, it's 202-224-3121 and urge them to pass these bills. Share what's in them, actually, what is in them with the people in your circles and ask them to do the same thing. Have them make phone calls because we are yet again at one of these crossroads in history and the path that has been set in motion already is one of authoritarianism okay let's be clear for those of us who love democracy it is time to stand up and make our voices heard welcome to the dear white women podcast the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism and hopefully preserve democracy we're your biracial
1: hosts sarah and misasha from our favorite heather richardson cox's email newsletter on march 28th 2021 The Civil War began the process of linking the political power of people of color to a redistribution of wealth, which means wealth that wasn't just centralized in the hands of white people. And this rhetoric has haunted us ever since. When Ronald Reagan talked about the welfare queen or a Black woman who stole tax dollars through social services fraud, when Tea Partiers called our first Black president a socialist, when Trump voters claimed to be reacting to economic anxiety, they were calling on a long history. Today, Republicans talk about election integrity, but their end game is the same as that of the former Confederates after the war, to keep Black and brown Americans away from the polls to make sure the government does not spend tax dollars on public services. One of the key tools in making this happen is the filibuster. And if you want to know why, you have to know the history of this political tool first. And you know we love that history, that is. So to back up a little and to touch on one of our other conversations. As noted by Anti-Racism Daily, voter suppression for Black people has been around since the beginning and definitely in the post-Civil War era. As a refresher, the 15th Amendment, which was enacted in 1870, made it unconstitutional to deny any man the right to vote based on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And that's according to National Geographic. But Black men were often barred from the polls, along with other people of color, through statewide rules and regulations that limited their rights. This wasn't just a racial decision, but a political one, because during that time, Black people overwhelmingly voted Republican. And before that sounds very strange to you, remember that at that time, Republican was the party of Abraham Lincoln. So, How did they bar Black and brown people from the polls? States implemented polling taxes, which made it too expensive for any poor person to vote. Some also started to use literacy tests to thwart Black people, knowing that many weren't granted the opportunity to learn and were punished for attempting to.
0: And side note, just because it is so interesting, here's a phrase to consider not using again. The grandfather clause is often included as a form of voter suppression. So it was a practice that granted prospective voters eligibility if their father or grandfather had voted in the past. And so this obviously did bar non-white voters from voting. But it was actually implemented to enfranchise, to give the right to vote to uneducated and or poor white men so that those same poll taxes and literacy tests that you just talked about did not block them. So the law became obsolete after a Supreme Court ruling in 1939. But you've all heard it. That term grandfathered in still remains.
1: Yes, great reason to never use that term again. But besides those measures, individual states often felt the need to go even further because those weren't enough. For example, in Mississippi in 1890, the state went so far as to require voters to read and interpret a section of the state constitution chosen by a local official. I would not want to do that. Right? Let's just think about that one for a second. Who would want to do that? No one. White people were given simple clauses to read and often assisted by poll workers. In contrast, Black people were given the most incomprehensible clauses that even the most well-read political figure may not have understood. Notably, these were measures that individual states put in place to suppress individual voters because they were worried about Black voters supporting the Republican Party. Again, remember, that's the party of Lincoln. But white supremacy also found another way to subvert the vote of Black individuals, or more largely, any progressive agenda. That's the filibuster. And perhaps the easiest way to talk about the filibuster is through a quick fire, like rapid Q&A session like The Week did in its piece about the filibuster way back in 2007. So let's start with some basics.
0: So question is, what is a filibuster? It's a procedural maneuver by a senator or even a group of senators to block the party in power from getting its way. In order to launch a filibuster, a senator simply asks to be recognized by the presiding officer. And then launches into a speech denouncing the offending legislation and they keep talking and talking and talking about anything and everything. And it's a verbal barrage, which is purposely designed to temporarily paralyze Senate business and prevent the disputed matter from being put to a vote.
1: All right, next. And this is my favorite. Was the filibuster in the Constitution? And the answer is no. Filibusters were created by a quirk in Senate rules. When Congress first took office in 1789, both the House and Senate allowed any speech or debate to be cut off by a simple majority vote. The House still retains that rule. But in 1806, Vice President Aaron Burr and yes, if you've seen Hamilton, you know who this dude is, persuaded senators that limiting debate was against the spirit of the Senate, which he argued was more prestigious than the House and needed different rules. So you got to love that one already. The rule in the Senate was dropped. It took some years, though, before senators realized that boring people to the point of tears could actually be used as a political weapon. And there's one really important point to note here. There's a specific reason why the filibuster was never in the Constitution. And I'm just starring this for everyone who theorizes about what the founders' true intent was in drafting the Constitution, because you need to be listening right now. The founding fathers were well aware of the dangers of minority rule and purposely designed the Senate to be majoritarian, which means, in other words, they envisioned the need for only a simple majority to conduct Senate business. As Rob Goodman and Jimmy Sony wrote in the Atlantic in 2011. There's a reason after all that there's no filibuster written into the constitution. Our founders were deeply read in classical history and they had good reason to fear the consequences of a legislature addicted to minority rule. As Alexander Hamilton wrote in the Federalist number 22, if a pertinacious minority can control the opinion of the majority, the government situation must always savor a weakness, sometimes border upon anarchy. So in other words, minority rule, not good for anyone.
0: And that's what the filibuster is doing. So who filibustered first? A little bit more history here. Some historians believe that it was John Randolph of Virginia who in 1825 stood and refused to yield the Senate floor during a debate on a bill that he said favored the industrial north. In 1841, Democrats refused to yield the floor for three weeks to keep the Whigs, who had just become the majority, from firing Democrats on the federal payroll. After that, outnumbered senators realized that the rules on debate could be used to their advantage, and the tactic was used pretty regularly in the 1840s, though it still had no name. Then, a Washington person whose name is lost to history solved that problem after reading newspaper accounts of Caribbean pirates called filibusteros. The Spanish term was a corruption of the Dutch words for free and booty. These particular bandits specialized in kidnapping people and holding them for ransom. Soon, the Senate's legislative kidnappings... being called filibusters and the name stuck
1: all right so how has the filibuster been used And the answer is, at times, shamelessly. Under Senate rules, senators can talk about anything when they have the floor, not just the matter at hand, as, Sarah, you mentioned earlier. When Huey Long of Louisiana spoke for 15 hours and 30 minutes against New Deal legislation in 1935.
0: I mean, that's longer than my kids can even talk. Right,
1: I know. I've got one who could probably do this, but unclear. So when he was speaking for you know, 15 and a half hours, he offered up recipes for pot liquor, fried oysters, and roquefort dressing. When he ran out of things to talk about, he asked his colleagues and reporters to offer suggestions. But the longest individual filibuster was made by Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who had droned on for 24 hours and 18 minutes, notably against the civil rights bill of 1957. To fill the time, he read the election laws of all 48 states, the Bill of Rights and Washington's farewell address.
0: I'm shaking my head because I need to talk about this next question here. Is there any way to stop a filibuster? There is now, but it requires a lot of senators support. So during the 19th century, there was no mechanism for forcing a senator to sit down and Shut up, basically. The rules were amended in 1917 after isolationist senators filibustered to block President Woodrow Wilson from arming merchant ships during World War I. And this is what happened. A little group of willful men, an outraged Wilson thundered, representing no opinion but their own, have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. So, chastened, the Senate passed Rule 22, which said that a two-thirds majority of those present So like a supermajority, you've heard that phrase in the media lately, could end a filibuster. It's a procedure called cloture. The two-thirds rule was subsequently changed to three-fifths, which is now 60 votes in 1975. Republicans were happy with that arrangement until President Bush's first term, when outnumbered Democrats resorted to filibusters to block 10 of Bush's nominees to federal judgeships.
1: All right. So last question. Has the filibuster and has it ever been stopped, you know, before? So the answer is rarely, but yes. So let's talk about the use of the filibuster briefly in more recent times. In 1968, for example, conservative Republicans successfully filibustered Lyndon Johnson's nomination of Supreme Court Associate Justice Abe Fortas to be Chief Justice. During Bill Clinton's presidency, Republicans were able to bury about 40 of his federal judicial appointments without using the filibuster. They simply refused to schedule hearings on them. Does that sound familiar? It should. Well, it also sounds so juvenile, right? It sounds like stuff my kids would pull.
0: I'm sorry to bring kids up, but it feels like I don't want
1: to do this, right? It totally does. And as we noted during Bush's first term, Democrats got even by filibustering the most conservative of his judicial appointments. And P.S. that didn't go over well, even though over 200 judicial appointments under Bush got through anyway. As the Root notes, and we agree, let's be clear. The filibuster means nothing. It does not ensure a bipartisan consensus, nor does it protect the minority party. The 60-vote threshold to close debate has been repeatedly modified or wholly abolished whenever the majority party deems it necessary. When Republicans obstructed Obama's federal court picks, Democrats eliminated the filibuster requirement for federal judicial nominees. Republicans used the filibuster to conform or eliminate the filibuster requirement, actually, to conform Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. For most of its history, the procedural rule required debate stalling senators to talk the entire time until it didn't. At one time, the House of Representatives also had a filibuster rule until it didn't. And the answer, because it's stupid. And yes, it is a tool of white supremacy. Barack Obama called the filibuster, quote, another Jim Crow relic. And this is really important. That's because for 99 years, every single anti-lynching bill presented in the Senate has been filibustered, including Rand Paul blocking the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act on the day of George Floyd's funeral. As we noted earlier, Strom Thurmond held the longest one-man filibuster in US history to stall the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Southern Democrats hold the record for the longest party filibuster to block the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And even Woodrow Wilson, who was a strong white supremacist, noted that the Senate of the United States is the only legislative body in the world which cannot act when its majority is ready for action, adding, again, a little group of willful men representing no opinion but their own have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. So again, think about how the filibuster has been used and think about how crucially important it has been to block civil rights legislation.
0: And it's also been used to block other key measures in the Senate. Do you have thoughts on gun control? Because the filibuster continues to be used to block gun violence legislation. In 2013, there were two senators who introduced legislation requiring background checks for private gun purchases, which is a modest reform with massive popular support. What happened? The bill died in the Senate despite garnering the support of 54 senators, including members of both parties. This bill is a great example of the lesson we need to learn about the filibuster going forward, because even bipartisan bills, however popular they may be, can and will be blocked by a small number of Republican senators if the filibuster remains in place. Another key measure, the DREAM Act. It would have passed in 2010 if not for the filibuster. Dreamers and their families continued to fight for their lives under the Trump administration. But the truth is that fight didn't need to happen except for the filibuster. In 2010, Congress and the White House were all controlled by Democrats. So when the House passed the DREAM Act and sent it over to the Senate, DREAMers hoped that they would soon get permanent relief from deportation. And instead, the DREAM Act was blocked because with a vote of 55 to 41, it didn't get the necessary 60 votes to advance. Again, it has to be a supermajority. We have taken out the ability of the majority will to actually make a difference at this stage.
1: Right. That's such an important point. you know. But as Senate Democrats display an increased willingness to abolish or change the filibuster, It is not just Republicans or conservatives who are defending the archaic legislative loophole as an important institutional tool for stalling progress. While President Biden recently reversed course on his support for the filibuster, some Democrats are siding with Republicans on the necessity of keeping this alive. So if you're in Montana, Delaware, California, Colorado, Maine, or New Hampshire, you already have Democratic senators on record saying they're not totally convinced about canning the filibuster right now. I mean, personally, I
0: agree. It might be a double-edged sword, right? And the filibuster in and of itself may not be the problem. But having all progressive policies, including voting rights, being stalled and being hamstrung from making changes about that the majority of the country wants, like gun control, for example, that's not going to work. That is stalling our country from making any changes and moves.
1: And I think we have to think about Georgia right now and voting rights and how we Voting rights legislation currently in the form of HR 1 is in front of our Congress. The filibuster is a key tool to block that legislation from happening and protecting voting rights for everyone. And when you think about Georgia and how voting rights have been really curtailed there to punish the people who put, you know, Warnock and Ossoff into those Senate seats, they're going to come up again. Those Senate seats will come up in 2022. Those were special elections. Those were not a six year Senate seat. So the immediate impact of voting rights restrictions will be felt in places like Georgia. And that Effect, because if you remember the importance of the Warnock and Ossoff seats to get to a Senate Democratic majority, basically with Vice President Harris as a tie breaking vote, that could shift the entire power balance of our Congress. So it may seem little and it may seem very specific to a certain state, but the filibuster's impact on our entire legislative process could be huge. Especially considering
0: that Governor Kemp just signed into law all of those voter changes, which will have to, you know, voter restriction laws, which will be in effect for the 2022 midterm elections.
1: Right. Right. And the midterms are less than 18 months out. Right. They're not some futuristic thing like we don't have you know, we're not on a four year presidential calendar. We are thinking about the midterms that those campaigns are going to start soon.
0: And so we need HR one to pass, especially to offset some of these things that are happening on the state level in terms of voter suppression. You know, I guess my fear is like that, or I guess we just need to have faith that American voters are going to get out there in local elections and vote for people that they believe in to make the representation in the federal government what it needs to be in order to move the country in any direction at this stage, right? So I guess let's talk about how do we eliminate the filibuster, just so we know, because there is good news. And that is that all it takes to eliminate the filibuster is a simple majority vote in the Senate. And this can be done at any time. Can they filibuster a filibuster vote? Potentially,
1: right? I mean, I guess if you're, yeah, there aren't really
0: restrictions. You could. But Senate Democrats can introduce a big package of democracy reforms like D.C. statehood and expanding voter rights, which they've just done. Mitch McConnell, the self-proclaimed grim reaper of progressive legislation, then initiates a filibuster. Democrats can then hold a vote and with just 50 votes, eliminate the filibuster and prevent McConnell from vetoing the legislation.
1: If you're wondering about how this would look, this is a sample scenario of how this could work. So- the democratically controlled House of Representatives passes and sends to the Senate HR1, which is a landmark pro democracy bill that puts political power back in the hands of the American public. Check, that's been done. All right, the democratically controlled Senate now attempts to pass HR1 and send it to the Democratic president for a signature. But because Democrats don't have 60 votes in the Senate, their efforts are blocked by Mitch McConnell, who has vowed to kill all progressive legislation. Democrats face a choice, either accept congressional gridlock where none of their priorities get done or do away with the filibuster in order to pass their priorities with a simple majority. Senate Democrats then choose democracy and try again to pass H.R. 1, but this time vote to eliminate the filibuster to prevent McConnell from blocking it. H.R. 1 passes with a simple majority and goes to the Democratic president for signature. McConnell calls it an undemocratic power grab, but democracy is saved and Democrats can move on to other priorities like health care and climate legislation. Then... We as an American public get to win on other priorities like healthcare and climate legislation. It's
0: uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And, And we'll see what happens, because then what I'm concerned about is the ping pong effect where we go back and forth and back and forth on different bills. But at the end of the day, having everything stalled is not making any progress anyway. So what can we do here? Call, write or email your senators. Make sure your voices are heard on HR1 and the future of the filibuster. We may have our best chance yet to get one roadblock to legislation that is truly by the people for the people out of our paths for good, but it will depend on all of us raising our voices and being heard. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review, and it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.